0: All right, let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also, for the first time in over a year and a half now, have Bibles in the racks under the seats. (laughs) Yeah, I miss that. We bought these really fancy Bibles like a year and a half ago, and we never got to put them out. All right, um, but... We got them today. Uh, if you happen to be watching us online right now, uh, you can, uh, I think we'll put the text up on your screens uh, when we get to that point in our time as well. Um, hey, hey everybody, we're back in Corinth. You excited about it? You don't sound excited. <laughs> we're back in Corinth. If you're new here, uh, we kicked off uh, an effort back last week. Fall uh, to slowly walk together through the book that the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. We shut it down a little bit before Easter uh, so we could take a break and focus on some other stuff for a while, but that break's over. It's time to get back to work, all right? It's time to get back into Corinthians. And so If you're not aware, maybe you don't have much of a church background, or maybe you're newer here. If you're not aware, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to an incredibly young church in the Greek city of Corinth. Um, It's... Uh, He had helped to start the church in Corinth, we believe, uh, we're told. Uh, He was there probably a year and a half, like 18-ish months there. Uh, And then he left there to go off and start other churches in other places. And we think that by the time that this letter is written, he had been gone about two to three years uh, by this point. And so Corinth is a city that he knows incredibly well. He knows the ins and outs of town. He knows uh, what the city values. He knows what kind of drives the economy there he understands and gets the city of corinth and he understands the church there even though there's probably been a lot of turnover since he's left in that two to three years all right those he 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 gets the place he understands the place these are not strangers to him and he is very well aware that the church in corinth is a mess it's an absolute mess there's infighting, there's rampant sin, everybody's jockeying for position and, 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 and posture and all that kind of stuff. All right? It's an absolute train wreck in Corinth. And what we've discovered over the course of this letter, even though it's been a while for us, if you remember back you know, all, the, all the time we've spent digging into this letter, what we've discovered throughout the, the course of this letter is that pretty much all of their problems are rooted in one thing, pride. It's rooted in pride. They they thought a little too highly of themselves, and, and that pride caused them to to go chasing after self exaltation rather than sacrificial service. It caused them to go chasing after the approval of those outside of the church rather than the Lord over the church. That pride flushed itself out in a thousand different ways, but it was all rooted in the same kernel of a problem. And, and so, uh, but a point that. Paul calls them back to over and over and over and over again throughout this letter is that God has intentionally built out his kingdom, intentionally uh, set up his kingdom in such a way that, that it appears to be upside down to all the competing kingdoms of this world. It's done that way on purpose. It, his kingdom values different things. It, it props up and celebrates and rewards different things. I mean, I mean, the very center of our faith revolves around a bloody Savior hanging naked and suffocating on a Roman cross, right? Like, like, who looks at that and goes, yeah, I want more of that in my life. Please sign me up for whatever that guy is leading. Not exactly that the... Not exactly something that the world goes running after, right? In fact, Paul points out that the world will naturally see the cross of Christ as either folly or as a stumbling block. It either robs them of everything that they can do on their own to prop themselves up and position themselves close to God, or it's seen as absolutely ridiculous that a king would ever lay his own life down like that. Folly or stumbling block, but... But here's the deal, it's not just the cross that gets this treatment. It's not only the cross of Christ that's seen that way, that's seen as a, a stumbling block and a, and a folly. There, there have been another of, uh, a number of other upside-down things in this letter that we've had to come to terms with, right? Like 1 Corinthians is consistently hard for us to hear and submit ourselves to because in order to, uh, to point us to that otherworldly kingdom, Paul has to attack worldview. He has attack really the worldview that we find our own selves living in. He has to point out the insufficiencies of a value system that influences literally everything about how we live and think and try to make sense of the world around us. And uh, that reality is going to be no less true for us today. I mean, if you, maybe you like to read ahead. Maybe you saw on the board that we shut it down at the end of 1 Corinthians 10, back in March, and now it's time to, to pick it up in 1 Corinthians 11, the text that we're going to look at this morning has a really long history of being side-eyed and looked at with concern and maybe held up as backwards. Um, there are some who would prefer to see it completely stricken from the record, right? Others try to explain it away, give a, a long list of reasons of why it probably doesn't apply to us anymore, just ignore it. And then you got other groups who would never dare to undermine it. They would just kind of avoid it when they can and maybe not preach directly through Corinthians because it's a landmine. What makes this text even more fun, significantly more complicated, is that there's a final group in our world today that tries to use this text and others like it as a club to harm people. And they would use it to enforce some terribly unChrist-like things. So what do we do with it, right? How how do we approach texts like this one? Well, I'm of the opinion that the way you get it wrong is by trying to make it say too much or too little. It's possible to swing that pendulum both directions. Um, and, And so the first way that it gets skewed is to ignore the ten chapters of context that it sits upon. 10 chapters of context that led up to what Paul is about to say. See, over and over and over and over again, Paul has continued to just bang the drum and call us to chase after eternal prizes rather than temporary earthly ones. Have you picked that up? Have you seen that as a consistent theme throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians? That God's people are defined as a people by being others-focused and self-sacrificial, by trusting God, God's promises for eternal blessing over anything that could ever be gained by earthly wisdom. So that even when earthly wisdom seems to make sense, that God's wisdom comes in and we trust it more, right? Have we seen that drum consistently beat over and over and over again throughout this letter? And so we we have seen that eternity-focused posture play out in all kinds of things as we walk through this. We've seen it how we how we submit to church leadership and put aside petty divisions and rivalries. We've seen it in how we approach things like romantic relationships, singleness and marriage and all those kinds of things, dating. Uh, But right before we shut it down back in March, we even, we spent like four weeks in a row, like illustrating this others focused posture when it comes to matters of conscience. We we spent way more time than anybody ever should talking about meat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols, right? We spent like four or five weeks on that stuff. And so meat that had been collected up and resold after it had been previously sacrificed. And so there was this big debate in the church in their day, like, should Christians eat that? Are they allowed to eat that? Is that even okay? And, and so what we learned was that while Christians have every right to enjoy that meat, regardless of where it might have come from, our greater desire is to love and serve others. Our, our responsibility even is to, to point others toward the surpassing value of God and his kingdom over and above what might be pleasing and good for us. So that leads us at times to lovingly lay down what we might call our rights or our freedoms for another's good. In fact, we're, we're happy to do so. The expected posture from God's people at all times, the expected posture from God's people is that our freedom to enjoy something takes an immediate back seat to our desire to see others walk deeply with the Lord. That's our default posture. Our freedoms are less important to us than our love for our brother. And so we might have taken a couple of months off from this. We might have had a little break, but Paul's just been waiting for us to come back. He's got one message in this letter. He's going he's gonna to shift his application a little bit, but his... his His main message of 1 Corinthians has not shifted at all. And so uh, he's going to begin applying this same others-focused posture to the regular rhythms of the gathered church. He's going to look at what the practicals are of of when the Corinthians gather together. and He's going to begin applying this others-focused posture to that setting. In fact, he's going to spend the next four chapters even addressing three main categories of these rhythms. And so you ready to look at it? Good. That's, a, that's my only plan for today. So we looked at verse 1 of chapter 11 back in March. You remember, Paul calls the church there to imitate him as he's imitating Christ. And that's a pretty lofty goal, right? Like, Paul better be nailing this stuff. You don't get to say something like that and just phone it in. Paul better deliver. But Paul is clear here, absolutely clear here, that he has zero desire to command anything of the Corinthians, that he is not first practicing himself. And so everything he's about to write needs to be heard with the tone of, I'm already doing this. Follow me. And so in verse two, he says this. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you, uh, want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, so Paul has a lot of critiques for the church in Corinth, obviously, but, but he also seems to have some, at least a handful of things that he can celebrate, right? He can point to and say, yeah, good job, good job. Like, like he points to, to their remembrance of him, like, meaning that they seem to pray for him pretty consistently. That, that's a good thing. He also points to what he calls the maintaining of traditions, and and most assume here that he means the apostolic traditions. Uh, Like, for instance, next week uh, in our time together, we're going to spend our time looking at how the church in Corinth completely messed up the practice of the Lord's Supper. They got that wrong in a number of ways, but here's the thing to note. They were practicing the Lord's Supper. That's something that Paul taught them to do, and even though he's been gone two to three years, they're still practicing the Lord's Supper, so they're maintaining the traditions, right? They're getting it wrong. They need to be critiqued, but hey, good job. You're still doing it. And so there are certainly some good things going on, but verse 3 starts out with a but for a reason, right? He quickly shuts down the celebration and goes right back to critique. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So Paul is able to c- commend some practicals of their gathering, but there's also some incredible dysfunction in the church in Corinth. And the, and the first thing he sets his sights on is, is what we would call gender roles within the body of Christ, gender roles within the church body. And I'm sure nobody walked in the door this morning already having a preconceived opinion about that, right? Several times now throughout the course of this letter, we, we've seen that the default posture for most of the people in Corinth was self-exaltation and self-promotion, right? It was the very air they breathed in that town. And that, that posture had infiltrated the church. Corinth wasn't exactly an incubator for structures of authority and submission. Not something that thrived there. Doesn't really thrive in our culture either. In fact, I think I can make you the argument that our culture probably struggles with this more than theirs did. Right? So Paul shuts down the pleasantries, and he goes right back to calling them to this otherworldly reality, to the showing off of submission for the sake of a better prize. He says, I want you to understand, meaning this isn't merely his opinion on the matter. It's not some unique cultural moment that everybody else ought to dismiss. Paul's just talking to the Corinthians right now. No, he's calling them to pay attention to something that is necessarily true. Something that they need to realize about how the world works in order to be getting this done correctly. He says, as husbands are to submit to Christ as the head, so wives should submit to their husbands. And both of these postures, each of these postures illustrates how Christ first submitted himself to the Father. He took on the form of a servant, right? He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is a reality we love. And so, listen, I I, kind of get it. There are a lot of people in our world who would immediately balk at any idea at all of submitting uh, yourself to, to, to an authority outside of you. That Like There are a lot of people who would see that as an intrinsically faulty way of looking at the world. I'm fully aware of that. But listen, to argue in principle against any form of willing submission, if that's something that is immediately out of bounds for you to consider, you don't simply lose the historic understanding of gender roles in the church. You also end up losing the incarnation. You lose the incarnation of Jesus If freely and willing, lovingly placing yourself as an equal under the authority of someone else is out of bounds, then so is Jesus putting on flesh and dwelling among us. The gospel is 100% dependent on the one who is eternally equal with the Father in power and dignity and value, refusing to cling to what was owed to him and instead becoming like a slave. The gospel is not a gospel without willingly submitting to another. The Father sent the Son. The Son finished the work that the Father ordained for him to accomplish. There is no gospel at all without the incarnate Jesus first subordinating himself for your good. There is no gospel. And so the call for submission here, despite the tsunami of folks who might try to argue the point, has literally nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with any kind of grab for power. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. It is a glad-hearted turning loose of power. It has everything to do with attempting to illustrate an eternal and foreign reality about God's good kingdom. And that's why in verse 4, Paul says this Every man who prays or prophesies with his head, unco- uh, excuse me, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesied with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. All right, so you spend a- enough time in-, in church and you'll eventually find someone trying to teach this passage of Scripture. And sadly, um, if you're familiar with all the examples that I seem to have experienced in my life, you, you watch this get a- made a mess of, right? Right. Um, There are two common streams of effort, of of error that I've seen in the world. Um, The first one, the first one is a failure to separate out the specific culture of Corinth from the commands that God places upon all his people across every culture, across every generation. Uh, For instance, I I grew up in a part of the world and at the tail end of a culture uh, where the idea of wearing a hat inside of a church would have been seen as an incredible sign of disrespect. Maybe you still come from that generation. Maybe you grew up in that part of the world. I got in trouble for it a lot when I was a kid. Like a lot. All the time. People would often point to this very verse as their justification for that. And, I mean, it's kind of there. Don't cover your head. This is also why you will find some women in a lot of other churches today who who believe that they are required to wear some like type of shawl to cover their head when they're in the building. They're they're trying to be obedient to what they believe that they see in the Bible. They're trying their best to be obedient to what they believe is is a requirement upon their their life when they're coming to 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 worship. And so uh, like I, I genuinely believe they're missing the point on this verse. I, I genuinely believe that they're overreading it, but I like. I believe that they knew their Bibles better and theology better. They wouldn't place this burden upon themselves. But listen, like, like, we should probably find some ways to applaud people who are just trying to be obedient to what they see in the Bible. That's a good thing, right? That's not a bad thing. I think it's an error, but at least they're trying to be faithful. And So the first common error is a, is a failure to separate out the specific cultural realities in play. The other direction that this, that this text often gets erroneously taught is to completely separate out the culture of Corinth from any of the commands that God would ever place upon us today. And so it's often taught in more liberal-minded settings that Paul is only speaking to a problem specific to the Corinthian church, and so like, there's nothing at all here for us to pay attention to and apply to ourselves. Just ignore it. It doesn't matter. He was handling a local issue. It's not for us. But is that ever the posture we take with the Bible? Seems like a really terrible idea. So, how do we avoid those errors? How do we prevent ourselves from trying to make this say too much, and at the same time, trying to make it say too little? How do we avoid those errors? Well, we we use what we do know about the culture of Corinth, and the ways that our own culture is often incredibly similar. And we use that to instruct us in how we can walk in obedience to God. In other words, we look for timeless principle here. So, so, so what is going on here that we can pull out for our own purposes? Well, for starters, Corinth, as we've already learned throughout the course of this letter, is absolutely full of pagan temples, right? They're just all over the place. They dot the landscape. And it would have been incredibly common in Corinth for men to pull their robes, pull their cloaks over their heads as a sign of piety. A a sign of, please don't hurt me reverence to a false god on the hill. Paul repeatedly calls the Corinthian believers to worship differently than their pagan neighbors do. Like that shouldn't, that should be an obvious thing, but they kept getting it wrong. He kept having to correct that in them. And they they, they kept allowing the, the, the wrong understanding of false gods to influence the way they worshiped and tried to interact with the real God. They kept bringing that in, this this false idea in on their uh, that b- they allowed it to bear weight on how they approached and interacted with the true God. They brought the same fake piety into the church, hoping to earn God's benevolence. A couple problems with that, though. One, with the debt of sin you, that you owe, there's absolutely nothing that you can ever do to earn goodness from Him. Pulling that shawl over your head doesn't do it. Not going to make you automatically now okay to Him. But secondly, for Christians, through the work of Jesus on the cross, there's absolutely nothing you can ever add to the goodness that He's already shown to you. You can't sweeten the deal, Jesus made it sweet enough. You have been fully and forever reconciled to God by the sufficient death and resurrection of Jesus, your Savior. So repent of the nonsense and uncover your head. What are you doing? Quit playing spiritual games. He is neither impressed by it nor has asked it of you. Uncover your head. Uncover your head. But he doesn't just speak to men here. Paul also speaks to wives. And there's another massive cultural piece in play that we need to consider. In that culture, married women wore shawls on their head. Period period. It it wasn't a fashion choice. It wasn't a practical garment for those who just really wanted to avoid having a tan. In that culture, first century Greek world, married women wore shawls. And so, in that culture, first century Greek world, what does it mean when a married woman goes around without a shawl? It's not just that she's just available. It's not just that to those who know her husband, to, to those who know the relationship, those who know them, the clear message is that she has thrown off his authority. You, you want to give it a modern-day equivalent? This would be a lot like a married woman in our day and age standing up in front of everybody and making a giant show about pulling her wedding ring off and tossing it. That's what's going on here. And Paul says that this is happening in the church. In the church, when, when they're praying and prophesying, Listen, moments that ought to be a clear picture of the beauty and the sufficiency of God were instead used as platforms for a rejection of authority and self-exaltation. That sounds like a problem. So Paul tells the women in Corinth, what, what are you doing, man? Cover your head. Cover your head. I mean, I guess you can go ahead and cut all your hair off so you can know, show that you're still under your husband's authority, but that seems like a really dumb thing to do. God gave you really pretty hair. Just put a shawl on. Repent of your pride. Honor your husband and honor the Lord. And then in verse 7, Paul says this. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Okay, so I'll go ahead and admit, that's a pretty complicated couple of sentences, but all Paul is really doing here is stepping away from the, the cultural specifics uh, in Corinth and turning his attention instead to a much deeper created order. In other words, there's definitely a default principle here we need to be paying attention to. Um, this means that, the, that while the take the head covering literally crowd is overselling this command a little bit, the this is only cultural and we don't have to pay attention to it. Crowd is completely missing the boat. They're missing something incredibly important. Paul doesn't say, well, you know, you know. I, I, now that I've had some time to think about this a little, little bit, like the culture in Corinth is quite unique, quite unique, and so unfortunately, we're going to have to ask you to do something that we don't, you know, don't ask other people to do. It's just a, something a little extra for the time being. So could you go ahead and do this one little thing for me, please? And instead, he. He points them back to Genesis 1 and 2. He says that we need to look at this problem through a much, much longer lens. He starts off with the man. He says, If God wanted Adam to cover his head in reverence, he would have given him a hat. God doesn't doesn't need that outward sign, so you don't have to come up with symbols of piety for him. God created Adam sinless. He placed him in the garden. He did not say, and make sure you cover your head in my presence. That's not what's going on there. And so to continue trying to cook up, to continue trying to add layers of piety to yourself as these outward signs, even after Jesus has fully reconciled you, it fundamentally misunderstands who God created you to be. It fundamentally misunderstands the relationship you have with him as an image-bearer. But there are also creation-level realities for the woman in play here. There's an order to creation, right? God creates Adam, and then Eve is created with a piece taken from the man if you if you remember adam's response when god brought her to him like like how did he respond he was a little excited right a- another way to say that would be that he gloried in her he celebrated her was awestruck by her she's his glory adam is charged with leading and protecting his wife, and Eve is created as a partner and helper under Adam's authority and protection. If you, and if you know your Bibles well, then, then like like this is, is precisely why. This is the reason why that God blames Adam, even though Eve was the first one to eat the fruit. Adam had a job to do, and he failed. He did not Do what God commanded him to do. And so Paul points to this creation-level realities, these creation-level realities. And in verse 10, he says, this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Listen, that symbol might be flexible. It, it, It played out a specific way in Corinth. But listen, a symbol probably needs to be there. A symbol is necessary. Whatever the culturally relevant symbol is, it's pointing not to the the culture, but to a pre-fall reality built into God's good design for creation. It's pointing to something that's bigger than us and predates culture. We already talked about it, but I I think the chief symbol for our day and age would probably be the wedding ring, right? That's how you show people in our culture that you're married. To be honest, I don't think we're limited to that. I think I could, I think I would probably make the argument that another incredibly important symbol in our culture today would be for a wife to publicly defer to her husband on some things. I mean, let's be honest, that'll stick out like a sore thumb. You may be thinking to yourself, well, is, that, is that kind of thing really necessary? I mean, most people don't care about that, and the ones who do care about that probably care in the other direction. Like, is it, is it really worth it to go to, to that kind of trouble? Like, why would we do that? It's because it's a countercultural opportunity to point people to eternal realities. That's why. It's, it's an upside-down kingdom moment to point people to an otherworldly beauty that only exists in God's good design. So yeah, I'd say it's probably necessary. See, the hardest thing the hardest thing about looking at this stuff in 1 Corinthians 11 or when we come to something equally difficult in 1 Corinthians 14, the, the hardest thing about looking at this stuff and seeing it as good and lovely is a cultural misunderstanding that we've all inherited that tries to tell us that any kind of willing submission is the same thing as assigning value, right? Right? I mean, for a lot of people in our culture, placing yourself under an authority is seen as the exact same thing as you saying, I'm not as valuable as that authority. We may never say that out loud, but it's what we all inherently think when we see it play out, when we see it happen. That's the chief, but, 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 but that we all have welling up inside of us when we come to texts like this. But follow me here. The Apostle Paul has said nothing of the sort. He hasn't said anything like that. That but, 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 that emerges in us because our inherited worldview wants to insert something into the equation that doesn't originally belong there. We're trying to poke it full of holes because we got a problem with it, but Paul hasn't actually said anything like that. In fact, he says the exact opposite in verse 11. Look at that. He says, nevertheless, nevertheless, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from who? See, the order that God built into creation, woman being created from man, is now joyfully turned on its head every generation coming after that. Since Genesis chapter 2, there is no such thing as humanity without God's incredible gift that is women. Like, I'm not here without one. Women are not merely a necessary piece of God's design. They are a rightly celebrated piece of God's design. Thank the Lord that every godly man that's ever walked this planet came first from a mom who loved him. Maybe you had a good mom, and maybe you didn't have a good mom. Man, thankful, we're thankful that there was a mom in there. The Bible is full of celebrations of women. Every time you turn around, God is using a woman in some kind of massive way that the culture around them never would have imagined. Any attempt, I mean at all, any attempt to try to separate out the prescribed male headship that we see in the Bible from the... (laughs) absolutely incredible celebration of women that we also see in the Bible. Any attempt to separate those two things out is an act of gross intellectual dishonesty. You've got to ignore vast swaths of Scripture to do that, to play that game. So so why then do we see that game played so often? Like why do we see people, a lot of people even, Whether swinging the pendulum all the way in one direction or all the way the other, why do we see so many people try to separate those two things? Why why does it feel like texts like these are awkward for us, and like there's some kind of awkward uncle we hope don't show up to the family reunion? Why, Why do we wish we could maybe get past this one and hurry up and get to the Lord's Supper thing next week? Well, for one, because like a lot of other things in this world, bad actors abuse good tools. Can can we be honest? Some people are idiots. Not me, other people. Some people are manipulative. Some people go looking for ways to twist and malign good things for their own selfish, sinful purposes. They're out there. Last I checked, though, idiots use, uh, using and abusing a good thing doesn't make that good thing a bad thing. It makes them idiots. And so we do what God prescribes, and we correct the idiots. That's our role. Another reason why the Bible's prescription of male headship often gets maligned is because kingdom of God realities rarely, almost never, make any sense at all to those outside of the kingdom. Newsflash, the upside-down kingdom looks upside-down. And in the exact same way that the cross of Christ is seen as a folly and a, and a stumbling block, so too does a lot of other realities in God's kingdom, especially this one. In fact, I, we really ought to expect it to be misrepresented and ridiculed. We really ought to expect that. I mean, what other, what other play does a lost world have to run? They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to process any of this. If if you let those who don't understand something be the ones to define it, you're always gonna get some kind of weird, twisted definition of that something. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to they don't they don't know how to hand, they don't know how to handle this. That was a hard sentence to say. <laughs> Woo! All right. But there's a question we've been training ourselves to ask, right? Whenever we come to these kingdom of God realities that feel upside down, that feel difficult, that feel foreign, that feel like maybe it might not even be worth it, there's a question that we've been training ourselves to ask. Is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if the answers to those questions are yes, then misrepresentation and ridicule can't slow us down. They can't slow us down. Paul points to an ordering as old as creation itself. Maybe we don't have to worry about those who misunderstand and misrepresent it. God's design is going to outlast them. It's going to outlast them. Either his design is good and trustworthy or it's not. Paul's not quite done yet look at verse 13. judge for yourselves is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair it is a disgrace for him but if a woman has long hair it is her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering if anyone is inclined to be contentious we have no such practice nor do the churches of God okay so there, there's there's a Another text here that often leaves people uh, either frustrated or, or, or abusing it. But again, same posture as before, right? We, we look at the cultural reality and then we apply the timeless principle to ourself. And, and so Paul, he may be talking about you know, short hair and long hair, but the principle here is that Paul appeals to an obvious order of creation. Men are distinct from women. He points to that reality. Blurring those lines, it causes problems with understanding the world around us. you think that would be an uncontroversial statement, but welcome to Western culture in 2021. There's a, there's a clear distinction there. Does that mean that men with long hair are in sin? Does that mean that women can't have a short haircut today? I don't think it does. Um, for a couple of reasons. For one, there's no definition given here over what constitutes long hair versus short hair. All right? um, there, there's not a single representation of Jesus that I've ever come across that shows him with a buzz cut. Right? So he's always got like, shoulder-length hair and it's kind of fluffy. We don't know what long hair is or short hair is. I, 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 we don't know how long Jesus' hair actually was. They're all just artist's representations but I can go ahead and guarantee you Jesus never walked into a first century Judean barber and asked for a high fade. That's not his game. Paul's entire point here, his entire point depends on an assumed cultural understanding of what masculinity and femininity are. And our culture doesn't look the same. The second reason why I don't think your haircut is probably sinful is because... Our culture has shifted enough that hair length isn't always instinctually tied to gender roles anymore. But there are a whole bunch of other things that are. There are a whole bunch of other things that still are. And and so the issue here, the timeless principle in play is the confusing of gender and authority. And Paul is going to make the argument here that an intentional effort to continue confusing those roles, the Bible is clear, it's sin. It's sin. It doesn't matter how much the world around us might try to celebrate the confusion. God's word is clear. Not only do you have to ignore the Bible, but you've got to ignore literally the entirety of creation history to point to that confusion and still find ways to celebrate it. You've got to be willingly contentious. You're picking a fight with truth so Paul says in verse 16, that's not the posture of God's people. We we don't do contentious. We we don't do contentious. We we do self-sacrifice. We do loving submission and service because that's exactly what Christ first did for us. See, in a world that thinks that the apex of existence is the fully realized autonomy of self, Jesus comes along and lays down his own life for the good of those who have no business knowing him. Jesus comes along and for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Jesus comes along and calls his disciples to pick up their cross and follow him, die to themselves as they chase after following him. We don't do contentious We don't do argumentative. We don't do find a way to squeeze our autonomy in. We do lay down our life. We do sacrifice what I want for the good of another. told you like 35, 40 minutes ago that chapters 11 through 14 are all about properly ordered worship and the structures within the gathering of the church body. So what does this stuff have to do with that, right? Like, Like, how does that... How does that inform what we do in church? I'll tell you. A church ceases to exist if everybody is aiming at self-exaltation. I'll say that again because it matters. A church ceases to exist if everybody is aiming at self-exaltation. Now, we may get a bunch of people gathered in one room. We may sing some Christian y songs and do some pretty impressive spiritual stuff. We may even call it Christian, but a crowd full of contentious people has ceased to bear the identity of their Savior and King. They're not a church anymore. A church ceases to be a church when everybody in the room is posturing for position and autonomy. And listen, that includes the more respectable-sounding posturing that we often find in our current cultural moment. New chapter, same story. Whether we're talking about romantic relationships, or we're talking about leftover idol meat, or even if we're talking about gender roles within the body of Christ, the posture, the posture that we have all been called to is that which points others to the beautifully transcendent Savior. Savior. The posture that we've all been called to is the one that joyfully lays down our rights, picks up the apron, ready and waiting for God to tell us where and how to serve. Trusting that our king is smarter than us. Trusting that he is good. Trusting that his promises are always fulfilled even better than we can imagine. Definitely more than we can make sense of right now. This kingdom's beautiful. So, what do we do with this stuff, right? Like, (laughs) how can we possibly respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, listen. You you may need to repent of some things. Just ask the questions. Does a lost world see you, look at you, and get a clear picture of an otherworldly reality? Do they get a sense that that you place your hope and your trust in something that they don't have? Do they look at you and see you organizing your life in a way that aims for a prize that can't be attained this side of heaven? Whether you've been called to practice authority or submit to authority, is it done in in the way, the specific way that Christ has called you to and is first exemplified for you? a good day to start pointing to a better kingdom. The one you're building won't last. It can't last. You got maybe 80 years and then it's going to be forgotten. But you can point people to a kingdom that is eternal and actually breathes life into them. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's an opportunity for you to respond to to God's Word in whatever way God is calling you to. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you're hanging out with us today. Um, listen, you can respond to God's Word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus himself. I am fully aware that this is not a text that's easy to grab if you're brand new to the church thing. Okay, what do we do with this? Here's what you need to know. Jesus has no interest at all in watching you play spiritual games. None. He has no desire to call you to clean yourself up just a little bit and, you know, try to be a better person. No, no, the one who calls himself Lord and King has every intent on changing everything about how you live and see the world. He wants that level of authority in your life. The Bible teaches that all of us by default are separated from God because of our sin. Sin is not some list of do's and don'ts that we should all try a little bit harder on. No, it's a posture that rebels against God as Lord and King. We are set against Him. And God, who is infinitely holy and infinitely just, will do what is right by punishing that sin appropriately. Punishing that rebellion. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sin, he makes us alive by his grace. The eternal son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make payment, full and final payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith. To turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You don't need anybody. Jesus wants to give you himself, but if you want to talk to somebody, I'll be down front here. I'd love to be helpful to you as you figure out what this response of repentance and faith looks like. But Whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together to his word right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for culturally difficult passages in 1 Corinthians. God will confess I'm sometimes fearful of how the world will respond to your word as if you were somehow worried about that too. I am sometimes fearful of how those who don't know you would think of your commands as if it weren't your spirit that enabled us to be obedient to them in the first place? God, especially when the text is hard. Would you change us by it? Would you call us to repentance? By your grace and by your strength, would you enable us to walk in obedience to things that, we either despise or maybe just don't love enough. God, would you help us enjoy the good gift that you've given us and in in how you've ordered creation and how you've placed people in certain settings in certain positions of authority and certain positions of submission. Would you help us love that and celebrate you in that? God, where our homes and our workplaces and our whatevers don't line up with your good design, would you call us to do something about that and show us how? Father, would you help us as a church model your good gift well? Father, for those who who don't know you, would you make yourself known this morning? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know. That's that's how we come to you. That's how we fall in love with your commands. That's how we are able to uh, walk in obedience to anything you've ever asked us to is when you work through us by your good grace. So we need that this morning as much as ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.